Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of True Crime Cases. I am your host, Allison Mendes, and today we are going to be diving into the ongoing Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell case. I actually wasn't going to cover this case, but I did a poll on Instagram, and the overwhelming response was that you guys did want to hear this case. So here we are, and oh my word, this case is absolutely bonkers, and it's definitely going to be a multi-part episode um, just to cover everything that's come out about this case. There is so much information. There are so many people involved in this timeline. There are so many different timelines, and I just want to be as thorough as possible and give you guys the clearest timeline and understanding of this case that I can because it can be very, very confusing. Um, Before we dive in, I did want to just update everyone that new episodes will be dropping on Fridays now instead of Tuesdays. I did post that across all of our social media accounts if you want to go follow us over there, Uh, but I wanted to just say it here so that everyone is up to date and hopefully we don't have any more late episodes. I can start rolling these out a little bit earlier in the day and not um, have to push anything back anymore. And that's pretty much it, so let's just get right into it. So Lori Noreen Cox was born on June 26th of 1973 in San Bernardino, California. When Lori was 19 years old, she married her high school boyfriend, Nelson Yanez, I think, um, in 1992, and they got divorced shortly after that. And on October 22nd of 1995, 22-year-old Lori marries 23-year-old William LaGoya, in the state of Texas. Now, Lori and William had one son together in 1996, and they named him Colby. And they went on to get a divorce shortly after this on February 25th of 1998. Now, Lori went on to marry a man named Joseph Anthony Ryan Jr. in 2001. Ryan legally adopted adopted Lori's son, Colby, And they went on to have a daughter together in 2002, and her name was Tylee Ryan. Joseph filed for divorce on August 13th of 2004, and that divorce was finalized on May 18th of 2005. Now, this divorce was a little bit messy, and since the two had children together, it wasn't necessarily a clean break like the two divorces might have been because I didn't see anything messy about those. In fact, Joseph was actually attacked by Lori's brother, Alex Cox, in 2007 in Travis County, Texas. Alex uh, was allegedly told by his sister Lori that Joseph was being abusive towards her as well as the children. I know specifically she mentioned Tylee and 
made some very serious accusations against Joseph as as well as I think she accused him of being homosexual and that he had a pornography addiction. None of this was substantiated or anything like that. It just was, you'll see this is kind of a pattern for her. Uh, regardless, she told Alex this and this resulted in Alex confronting Joseph, actually tasering him and threatening to murder him. Now, charges were pressed against Alex, to which he pled guilty, and he was sentenced to 90 days in jail in Austin, Texas. And I just want to be extra clear that no evidence of Joseph abusing neither Lori or either of the children was ever brought to light. And just in my personal opinion, this was probably made up on Lori's part to get this exact reaction out of her brother, Alex. Uh, In fact, there are messages from Alex to a then-girlfriend that he was dating while he was in jail where he is still trying to get to Joseph, uh, writing to his girlfriend asking for Joseph's address and his license plate number so that he can give it to fellow inmates. I believe he asked for a, a picture of Joseph as well at one point for the same reason. I know he was making comments like along the lines of, I know some people in here that would really like to pay him a visit on the outside and just stuff like that just threatening basically now on february 24th of 2006 Lori ryan married leland anthony vallow also known as charles vallow now charles was a lifelong catholic uh, born and raised but he had converted to becoming a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as LDS. Now, Lori was also a faithful LDS member. Charles had two sons from a previous marriage named Nicholas and Zachary Chase. And in 2013, Charles and Lori jointly made the decision to adopt Charles's grandnephew. Um, So it was his, Charles's sister's grandson. And his name was Joshua Jackson Vallow, and he went by the name JJ. And JJ was on the autism spectrum. I know that he had some problems. I think from what I've heard that he, um, his mother was abusing certain substances while she was pregnant and that resulted in that. I didn't see anything that um, confirmed that. I just know that that is what is said by a few of the people that are involved in this case. Now, the couple moved to Kauai in Hawaii in late 2014 for about two years before they moved back to the state of Arizona in 2016. So just to sum this up, this is now Lori's fourth marriage. She has three children, her older son, Colby, her daughter, Tylee, and now her adopted son, JJ. And her entire family is an active part of the LDS church. Now, at some point in 2015, Lori came across a book series called Standing in Holy Places by a man named Chad Daybell, and she reportedly became obsessed with these books. Um, She was very much consumed by them, and I looked these books up just to get the uh, description for them on Amazon, and it is, quote, in the near future... Tad and Emma North and their children live in a United States that is growing increasingly wicked. 
The Norths and their extended family notice that many Latter-day Saints are being deceived by alluring temptations, and they wonder how much longer the Lord will allow American society to continue its downward spiral. Then comes an invitation from church leaders for the saints to gather together. This invitation isn't well accepted and even openly mocked, but those faithful church members who trust in the Lord soon find themselves accomplishing monumental tasks. Join these humble yet heroic saints as they embark on an unprecedented journey to build New Jerusalem. The Great Gathering, the first novel in Standing in Holy Places series, paints a vivid picture of exciting, prophesied events that still must occur before the second coming. If you have an interest in what awaits the members of the LDS Church, this series should definitely be on your reading list. So that is the descriptions for the books when you look those up. And then I also want to give a brief description of the LDS Church just for anyone that's unfamiliar with it because I know I wasn't familiar with it before I started researching this case. Um, So according to Wikipedia, the LDS Church is... Quote, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, often informally known as the LDS Church or Mormon Church. It is non-Trinitarian, Christian, restorationist church that considers itself to be the restoration of the original church founded by Jesus Christ. The church headquarters is in the United States in Salt Lake City, Utah, and has established congregations and built temples worldwide. According to the church, it has over 16.6 million members and 51,000 full-time volunteer missionaries. The church is the third largest Christian denomination in the United States with over 6.7 million self-reported members as of January 2021. It is the largest denomination in the Latter-day Saint movement founded by Joseph Smith during the early 19th century period of religious revival known as the Second Great Awakening. Now, church theology includes the Christian doctrine of salvation only through Jesus Christ and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. The church has an open canon, which includes four scriptural texts, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Other than the Bible, the majority of the church's canon consists of materials believed to have been revealed by God to Joseph Smith. These include commentary and exegesis about the Bible, texts described as lost parts of the Bible, and other works believed to be written by ancient prophets, including the Book of Mormon. Because of doctrinal differences, Catholic, Orthodox, and many Protestant churches consider the church to be distinct and separate from mainstream Christianity. Latter-day Saints believe that the church president is a modern-day prophet seer and revelator and that jesus christ under the direction of god the father leads the church by revealing his will to its president the president heads a hierarchical structure with various levels reaching down to local congregations known as wards bishops drawn from the lady lead the wards male members may be ordained to the priesthood providing they are living the standards of the church women are not ordained to the priesthood but occupy leadership roles in some church organizations almost done both men and women may serve as missionaries the church maintains a large missionary program 
and conducts humanitarian services worldwide. Faithful members adhere to the church laws of sexual purity, health, fasting, and Sabbath observance, and contribute 10% of their income to the church in tithing. The church also teaches about sacred ordinances through which adherents make covenants with God, including baptism, confirmation, the sacrament, priesthood ordination, endowment, and celestial marriage. So that is just a brief overview of the LDS church. And I just wanted to make that clear because we're going to get into some subgroups of the LDS church in this episode. Um, And I know that the LDS church has actually come out and said that, you know, they're not, they're not claiming any of these subgroups. Um, in fact, a lot of the doctrine of these subgroups kind of goes against the teachings of the LDS church. I don't want to paint LDS members as crazy because we're going to deal with some really crazy people, um, in this case. And I don't want anyone to think that this is, um, an example of what a normal member of the LDS church looks like or stands for because it absolutely doesn't. So anyways, um, at this point, we know that Lori is really getting into these novels by Chad Daybell, which I will go further into in just one second. She is starting to really dive into these sort of fringe subgroups of her LDS faith that have really extreme ideas. And we know from her nephew, who was living with her for a while during this time, that she was also starting to get really into um, following Julie Rowe and her podcasts as well. Now, Julie Rowe is an episode in herself. Um, She is an author and she is a self-proclaimed clairvoyant. She says that she had a near-death experience that caused her to have visions of the end times. Uh, Julie Rowe was a member of the LDS Church at this point in time, but A lot of what she says and believes does not align with the teachings of the church. And actually in 2019, Julie Rowe was excommunicated from the LDS church. Now, Julie Rowe was also pretty close with Chad Daybell at one point. And he even worked with her, I believe, on the possibility of publishing some of her books. And they had a lot in common. Now, Julie isn't a very large part of the story or even a really a key player, but I still think it's important to mention her because it gives you some insight into the types of things that Lori was really getting into and her belief systems at this point were becoming really, really fringe and really out there. And I think if you just give, (laughs) please give Julie Rowe a uh, goog and you, you'll have a little bit of an idea of what I'm talking about here. Um, It's actually something to behold. And I'll just leave it at that. I would definitely encourage you to go look her up. Now let's get into Chad. So Chad was born on August 11th in 1968 in Provo, Utah. On March 9th of 1990, Chad married a woman named Tammy. He also got a bachelor's degree in journalism at Brigham University in 1992. Now, he had previously worked as a cemetery sexton, which is otherwise known as just a grave digger. Now, in 2004, Chad founded Spring Creek Book Company with a man named Douglas. And this book company, which was pretty much solely dedicated to publishing Chad's novels, his end time novels, and they also published other religious books from the LDS faith. So they had other authors that were 
that they were publishing that were a member members of the LDS church. Now, in 2015, Chad said that he heard a voice that told him to relocate his family to Rexburg, Idaho. So in June of 2015, Chad and Tammy, along with their five children, whose names were Garth, Emma, Seth, Leah, and Mark, relocated from Springville, Utah to Rexburg, Idaho. Chad and his family are all members of the LDS Church, obviously. And so here we're going to get into one of the subgroups. So within the LDS Church, there is this organization called Preparing a People. And I would not say that the LDS Church affiliates itself with this organization whatsoever. I would say, though, that almost all members, like 95%, are members of the LDS Church that are members of this Preparing a People group. Now, on their website, Preparing a People says its mission is to help prepare the people of this earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout Chad's life, he um, had also had some near-death experiences, two to be exact. One when he was 17 years old and he was cliff jumping, which he recalled in one of his books titled Living on the Edge of Heaven, where he says during his experience, he crossed into another dimension and realized there was a world beyond this one. And then he had a second near-death experience in his early 20s when he was hit by a really large wave at La Jolla Cove, which is in Southern California. Chad recalled in that same book that this experience was much more in-depth than the first one, and that while his body was being tossed around by the wave, his spirit was visiting with his grandfather, who showed him future events involving his future children who were not yet born. Chad believes it was this accident that caused his, quote, veil to fall. And this veil separates the mortal world from the spirit world. And he thinks that because of this accident, his veil basically stayed partially open afterwards, after this experience. And he can now, now has one foot in both worlds, so to speak. So a lot of Chad's novels are this LDS slash futuristic kind of end of days novels. And he says that he writes about what he has seen in his visions and what he's been shown by these spirits. So Chad is heavily involved with this group, preparing a people, and he is sort of a big deal or maybe like a small celebrity in this small group of people that kind of follow this doctrine and these teachings. And he speaks at a lot of their seminars. They have a lot of, they really regard themselves as, as an educational group, like they're educating people for the end times. So he, they have, they hold these seminars, um, with, with a lot of people, actually, they get a big crowd and Chad is a public speaker basically at a lot of these events. And Chad also has the ability to know who will be a part of the 144,000, which is a reference from the Bible in the book of Revelation. It's chapter seven, verse four. And it says, quote, then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, end quote. 
And Chad believed that he was one of those 144,000, which I think he interprets that as basically that 144,000 being the last people left after Christ's second coming. And there's obviously a million different interpretations of this verse of the Bible and what that number actually represents. I'm obviously not going to dive into all that, but as it relates to this case, that is basically what Chad was interpreting it as, is that it's 144,000 are these chosen ones from Jesus Christ himself for when he returns and I'm assuming like takes them back to heaven. And this is where you start hearing a lot of those titles like doomsday cult and things like that is because this is really what they believed in and it kind of is, is a cult, sorry to say. But back to Lori. Now, on April 3rd of 2018, Joseph Ryan, who is Lori's ex-husband and Tylee's biological father, the one that had gotten into that altercation with Alex Cox, he is found dead in his apartment. And he is said to have been severely decomposed when they found him. He had actually only been found because a neighbor's dog had been like scratching at his door. And when the owner walked over to get his dog because it wouldn't even come back to him, he could smell like such a strong odor coming from the apartment. And I think that I saw that he even said he could see bugs in there. And so when that happened, he called 911 and he contacted the leasing office for the apartment complex as well. Now, when I was researching this, um, I watched a lot of videos on Nora Jasmine's YouTube channel. I highly suggest you guys check her out. She's incredible. And she said that when the maintenance worker went to get into that apartment, that they actually couldn't because a secondary lock had been put on the door. So they actually had to go get a ladder And the maintenance worker had to climb up the ladder onto the balcony of Joseph Ryan's apartment and enter the apartment through the sliding glass door on that balcony. And that's a little bit weird. It's not super weird. I actually worked as a leasing agent uh, for a few years. And typically when you lease someone an apartment, you have one lock. We don't typically do the lock on the doorknob itself because people tend to lock themselves out of their apartment a lot more with that one but it's not uncommon for people to want an extra lock added to their door like a chain lock or like an extra deadbolt so usually they'll either do the lock themselves and then bring the maintenance office a copy of that key so that we have it on file for things like this when there's an emergency and the the maintenance workers or the leasing office needs to get into your apartment if there were a fire or flooding or anything like that, if anything that we need to do, that's an emergency, obviously. And so either we, the maintenance team would have a request to install it, or they would install it themselves and give us a key. So there was a secondary lock on Joseph Ryan's store and they did not have a copy of that key. So that's the only thing that I find odd about that. And I can see that maybe he wouldn't give them a key if he was feeling a little bit paranoid that would be maybe one reason, but it's also something that I could totally be reading into and it doesn't mean anything at all. I just thought it was worth mentioning. Anyways, the medical examiner said that it was unclear how long Joseph Ryan had been dead due to the decomposition, but that he died of a heart attack and he was 59 years old at this point. Now, Joseph Ryan's body was cremated after his death 
And it was reported that Lori received his life insurance policy. I believe it's on behalf of Tylee, their daughter, um, because she was not 18. So Lori was supposed to receive it, but on behalf of Tylee to save it for her, which we can all guess that she didn't do that. And I believe the amount of that life insurance policy was $350,000, somewhere around there. I want to say it was exactly $350,000. Anyways, in October of 2018, Lori attended a class at her local LDS church that was being taught by a woman named Melanie Gibb. Now, after this class, Lori introduced herself to Melanie and the two became really quick friends, very close, very soon. Now, in this same month of October, a recording was made of Lori. I believe that she was speaking to like a group of women at the church and she was saying, quote, I was going to murder him, end quote. And she's talking about Joseph Ryan here, quote, I was going to kill him like the scriptures say, like Nephi who's a prophet from the Book of Mormon, killed just to stop the pain and to stop him coming after me and to stop him coming after my children, end quote. She went on to say, I think during this little teaching that she was doing that instead of murdering him, she decided to devote herself to her faith. So I just thought that was very odd that he, I think it's odd that he was so severely decomposed when they found him that makes it hard to accept a natural cause of death, especially once you start seeing the people around Lori that are, are going to start dropping like flies. Now, in October or November of 2018, Melanie and Lori decide to attend an event in St. George, Utah together. And this is a preparing a people event. And it was about two days long. Chad Daybell was also attending this event. And I believe he had a book stand there. And this is where Lori and him actually meet for the first time in person. Now, Lori reportedly introduced herself to Chad at this event, and they went on to have quite a few deep conversations and developed like a very instant connection, according to Melanie Gibb. It's during their first conversation, actually, that Chad tells Lori that they had been married to each other multiple times in their past lives. So past lives are also something that this group very, very strongly believes in. They call it um, probations. So they'll say if you've had multiple past lives, they'll, they'll call it multiple pr- probations. Just so you know. Now, in November of 2018, Chad was speaking at another event. This event was in Arizona. Again, a preparing a people event with Charles Vallow, Lori's husband, out of town for work, Lori invites Chad and Melanie to stay at her house while they all attend this event together in Arizona. I'm not sure if there were more people there, but I know for sure that Melanie and Chad were both staying at Lori's house on this for this trip. According to Melanie, on this trip, Chad and Lori spent quite a bit of time alone together. I know they went on a lot of walks together. That was kind of their thing. And Chad also begins sharing his beliefs with the group, such as the past lives or probations. And after this conference trip, Chad and Lori maintain, start maintaining constant communication on the phone. They're speaking like every day. And it's at this point that Melanie approaches Lori and asks 
you know, why, why don't you just get a divorce since it's kind of becoming clear to her that this is more than just, just a friendship between Chad and Lori. And Lori tells Melanie that the reason she can't get a divorce is because God had told them both that they were forbidden from divorcing. But this same month towards the end of November, Chad and Lori go to the temple together. And after this, they said that they were sealed they call it sealed together um, by spirits on the other side and that these spirits on the other side had married them together for eternity. Now, they're both still married to their spouses, but when asked about this relationship, they said that they did not feel guilty about it um, because they had been married so many times in their past lives that they felt that their other spouses would understand that one day. So on January 30th of 2019, Charles had been out of state for work in Texas and Lori decided that it was time for her to leave him. Um, And so she does this. She leaves him, but then comes back before he even gets back into town and she cancels his flight wipes out 35k from their shared bank account, leaving him with practically nothing, and she takes JJ and Tylee. Now, keep in mind her son Colby, who I mentioned earlier, is an adult at this point, so he's not really going to be involved in this situation. Charles manages to get back to Arizona somehow after she wipes him clean. I think he said he had like $7 to his name. And he gets back to Arizona and he calls the police. And body cam footage shows officers arriving at the family home where Charles is outside and he explains to them that Lori had changed the lock on their home. And when Charles is finally able to kick the door in with the help of the officers, he basically finds an empty house. Lori had packed up all of their belongings. She had taken both of the children. Now, the next morning, which was January 31st, Charles calls the police again this time to a hotel in Gilbert, where he believes that Lori is keeping the two children. Charles has actually obtained an emergency mental health petition for Lori at this point, and he wants the police to serve Lori here at at this hotel. And this petition would require Lori to check into a mental health institution in the area. And it's here that we get some insight into um, Lori's frame of mind a little bit deeper because Charles starts telling the officers the types of things that Lori has been saying. And at this point, I know that Chad has told Lori that Charles is not a, not Charles anymore, that he's actually a man named Nick Schneider, who is a dark spirit. So another thing that Chad and Lori believe in are light spirits and dark spirits. And that's pretty self-explanatory, except a dark spirit, you'll come to find out, is pretty much anyone that doesn't agree with Chad and Lori um, or upsets them in any way, shape, or form. You can go from light to dark real quick in their book. So... That's all I'll say about that for the time being. He tells officers that Lori said she was married to Moroni, who was an angel um, in the teachings of the LDS church. 
She claims to know when the second coming of Christ is happening in the next year and that she is a prophet. Um, She tells Charles that he is the dark spirit named Nick Schneider um, and that he is no longer Charles. And Charles then tells the officers that Lori said to him, quote, I'm going to kill you. You're going to be murdered today or tomorrow, end quote. She goes on to tell Charles that she can basically kill him with her God powers. She believes that she's like this reincarnated God. And um, Charles goes on to tell police that he had gone to JJ's school earlier that day and in hopes of catching Lori kind of like dropping JJ off because he still hasn't had any contact with her. He doesn't know what's going on. And he said that he actually saw Lori's car there. She wasn't in it. She must have been dropping JJ off like inside or something. So he said he opened the car door. It was unlocked and Lori's purse was sitting in there. So he took it in hopes that it would keep her from being able to leave the school. And then he could call police to come serve her this mental health petition that he had obtained at the school that morning. But Lori must have had a second set of keys or maybe the keys weren't even in her purse. She had grabbed them before she left the car and she was actually able to leave without her purse anyways. So he didn't have time to do that. Now, that same day, just a few hours later, Lori shows up to the police station with Ty Lee and Melanie Gibb to report her purse stolen. And this is where we get obviously a completely different story from Lori Now, she tells police that she had caught Charles cheating on her and that she told him that she had evidence of it and that, and she goes, he just goes nuts sometimes, insinuating that there is domestic violence between them. I know that's not the first time that she accuses Charles of this. I don't know how much of that is proven, um, but she has accused him of domestic violence. Now, Lori said she told Charles not to come home from his business trip because she knew about the cheating and that when he did get home, that his stuff would be gone and his car would be gone. Now, Melanie then explains to the police that Charles had texted her from Lori's phone after he had taken her purse that morning, that he was pretending to be Lori when he texted her and he asked Melanie to come over to the house. And when she got there, obviously Charles was the only one there and that he attempted to confront her about Lori obviously because she's been saying this insane stuff to him and he knows that her and Melanie are very close and so he's concerned about his wife like deeply concerned and when Melanie asked Charles to give Lori her purse back she tells the officers that he told her he would give Lori her purse back if she would agree to meet with a therapist At this point, the officers reach out to Charles to ask him to return Lori's purse to her. Charles agrees, and on his way to the station, he calls 911 himself to make sure that when he gets to the station, that the officers will serve Lori with this mental health petition when he gets there. Dispatch tells him that an officer will call him, and they hang up the phone. Charles then calls back a second time to just, like, make sure that they will serve Lori when he gets there. And I think this shows kind of like the desperation that Charles is feeling. I think he's beyond concerned at this point, not just for himself, but obviously for JJ and Tylee and obviously for her. I mean, this is his wife and, you know, they have a child that they've adopted together and 
I think he's just really concerned. I mean, she's losing it, you know, in his mind, she's losing it. And I just can't imagine how hopeless that would feel. But back at the police station, officers also make the decision to reach out to Lori and Charles's LDS bishop, whom Charles has already listed as a witness to what Lori has been saying. And this bishop's name is Gabe. Now, Gabe does tell the officers on the phone that Lori was making some very strange statements that he had heard himself during a phone call between Charles and Lori that Charles had conferenced him in on. And Gabe did make it clear to the officers that he did not hear anything threatening on this phone call. And she did not threaten to hurt herself, the children, or Charles from what he himself had heard. But that she was saying very irrational, strange things and oddly sounded very lucid at the same time. So officers get off the phone with Gabe and tell Lori about this mental health petition telling her that she would need to go to the mental health hospital uh, if she wanted to sort out what was going on on that side of things. They tell her that Charles is on his way to the station and that they would need time once he got there to verify the mental health petition and that she is not required to wait around while they verify that if she does not want to. Now, Lori was not taken to Community Bridges, which is the mental health hospital, that day. But there was a a uh, follow-up in the notes for the police report saying that Lori actually checked herself in on February 1st and that she was discharged within a few hours. I know Melanie Gibb went to that appointment with her and waited outside. And Lori, I guess, said that she passed with flying colors when she got out. So on February 8th of 2019, Charles Vallow filed for divorce. And a few days later, on February 15th, Charles filed for temporary custody of JJ, exclusive use of the house and vehicle, and the return of the stolen money, as well as his and JJ's personal items that she had removed from the home. Now, after this is filed, or slightly before, somewhere around February, the dates are not very clear on this, but I know that nobody can find Lori to serve her papers. And according to Melanie Gibb, Lori wasn't even attending church at this point in an attempt to avoid being served with these papers. And she's basically disappeared. Now, on February 20th, Charles realizes that the password to his life insurance policy has been changed without his knowledge. So he takes matters into his own hands and emails his life insurance company explaining what has happened. Uh, with his whole password situation and that he believes Lori is responsible for this. And at this point, he actually changes his beneficiary from Lori to his sister, Kay. Now from February, like I said earlier, from February to March, Lori basically disappears. I know that she leaves JJ with Charles and I believe that Tylee stays with another family member. I couldn't find a clear answer on that but I know that she won't communicate with Charles at all. It's said that there's like a 58 day period where she's literally basically missing to everyone. There are emails that he writes to her, um, basically begging for her to see JJ. They're very heartbreaking to read. Uh, He talks about how JJ is having a hard time not understanding why Lori isn't around. JJ knows Lori as his mom. Um, And it's just, it, it just makes you feel for them. 
I know there was a neighbor of Alex Cox, who's Lori's brother, who said that in February of 2019, so this would be that period of time where she was allegedly gone, he witnessed Alex and Lori having a, quote, knockdown, drag out, end quote, fight. And I believe it took place like in the street or outside to the point where neighbors were witnessing it. And the neighbors said that they even thought about calling 911 because it was that bad. Um, They decided not to, but I know they said that they thought it was a husband and wife fighting because they found out later that it was brother and sister and they were like, it just didn't seem like that type of fight because it was just very heated, I think. And the neighbor said that after that argument, they did not see Lori anymore. So it is not clear where she went for that remaining period of time as of right now. And I'm not exactly sure what causes Charles to have a change of heart, but on March 6th, he files to dismiss the divorce. And according to one of his older sons who he had spoken to about the situation, he really wanted to try to make this marriage work. And it's not clear what happens from March until July, but I do know that no reconciliation of any sorts takes place. I know that Lori returns from her little 58-day hiatus and has the kids again. And I assume that her and Charles have had some sort of communication with each other and some sort of visitation worked out, at least for JJ, because they share JJ. Now, on July 11th of 2019, Charles goes to Lori's new rental home in Chandler, Arizona, to pick up his son, JJ. Now, Alex, Lori's brother, is at the home when Charles arrives, as well as Lori, Tylee, and JJ. Apparently, an altercation takes place between Alex and Charles, and Alex later tells police that things got physical, and Charles grabbed a bat and basically came after him, which resulted in Alex running into a bedroom of the home where he knew a gun was, grabbing that gun, and shooting Charles twice in the chest. When Alex calls 911, he tells them, quote, I got in a fight with my brother-in-law and I shot him in self-defense, end quote. In the 911 call, you can hear the dispatcher ask um, Alex if Charles is breathing, to which he says, I don't know. The dispatcher asks him if he can go check. And he goes and looks at his chest, I believe, to see if it's rising and falling. And he says, no, he's not breathing. Then the dispatcher asks him if he is going to perform CPR and Alex says, I don't know how to do that. Then the dispatcher, I believe offers to walk him through how to perform CPR if he's willing to do it. And he agrees. He says that he will do it. And after the paramedics had arrived on the scene, Charles is pronounced dead. And later EMS recalled that they did not believe that Alex had performed any type of CPR on Charles because If he had, then there would have been um, almost like bigger pools of blood underneath Charles's bodies from the gunshot wounds to his chest mixed with the pumping that you have to do, the compressions that you do on someone's chest if you're performing CPR. They said there would have been a lot more blood pooling around his body and there wasn't and that they did not believe that Alex had attempted to perform CPR whatsoever on Charles. Later in the body cam footage from the responding officers, Alex tells them the whole story, the bat story, how it was self-defense. 
You can also see Lori's behavior in this body cam footage. Not typical of someone who has just seen, even if you're estranged from your husband, he just died. It's very, very odd behavior. Uh, she can be seen like out front of her rental home. She's just leaning up against her car. And at one point, the officer's asking her questions and she cracks a joke and is smiling and laughing. I know that they, she was like, oh no, I just moved into the house. And then she was like, haha, sorry, neighbors. Like, sorry that this is so dramatic. Like joking around, smiling and laughing. It was just very weird. And one of the detectives said, quote, Lori was kind of like happy-go-lucky. She was just kind of smiling. She was talking about how Ty Lee was going to BYU Hawaii. And it was just very, very nonchalant. You would have thought we just recovered their stolen vehicle, end quote. Alex Cox was also seen on the footage holding a bandage to the back of his head where he said that he was struck with the baseball bat by Charles, but the officer also noted, quote, it definitely didn't appear that he was struck with an extreme amount of force with the baseball bat. Charles was very physically fit and actually a former college ball player, so it didn't appear that it was a huge strike to the head, end quote. And that same day that Charles was killed, the police wrap up, they leave. I've heard that the police, one of the officers himself actually cleaned up the pool of blood that was in the living room where Charles's body was discovered. I've heard some crazy things about this police department and the way they handled this case. And we're actually going to get more in depth into this later on in the timeline, but they leave. Basically they buy this whole story that Alex has sold them. They have no more questions. They're good to go. So they leave and Lori um, has a pool party that evening at the, at the house uh, which the neighbors witnessed. I couldn't find who all attended this pool party, but I do know that the neighbors talked about there was like loud music, swimming, lots of friends coming over, laughing, um, which is just really, really odd to do on the day that your son's father, if nothing else, your son's father died. What's more odd is um, the way that Lori decided to tell Charles's older sons that their father had passed away. So I'm going to go through these screenshots. I found these on East Idaho News's website. It was reporting by Nate Eaton, who has been doing an excellent job reporting on this case. But I'm just going to go through all these text messages. So on Friday, July 12th at 4.36 p.m. So this is the day after their dad passed away. Lori texts them both in like a sort of group chat saying, quote, hi boys, I have very sad news. Your dad passed away yesterday. I'm working on making arrangements and I'll keep you informed with what's going on. I'm still not sure how to handle things. Just want you to know that I love you and so did your dad. Heart emoji. The boys reply, Lori, what happened? Where is he and what happened? Lori says, I'll call you when I can, bub. He's here in Arizona. Then the boys say, we're in Arizona. And then another message, when did this all happen? Another message, how's JJ doing? Another message, what funeral home is he at? No replies. 6.54 p.m. Sorry for my language here. Lori, what the fuck happened? You can't just tell us our dad died and disappeared. You're not too busy to just let us know he died and disappeared. I'm reading these with the typos and everything. 8.20 p.m. Still no response from Lori. 
Lori, it's been three hours. You're not that busy. I don't care what you're doing. Lori then replies, I'm so sorry you are upset. I'm so upset too. I'm trying to get JJ ready for bed. I'm waiting to hear back from the medical examiner to make sense out of all of this myself. Please be patient with me. It's a crushing, crushing situation all the way around. I'm still trying to process it too and what it means for JJ. The boys reply, when and where is the funeral? How did all of this happen? I want an explanation. Now there's no reply from Lori again. And the next day is Saturday, July 13th. And they text her at 5.07 p.m. So it's like a full day of no replies. And they send two question marks, one at five, another one at seven. Lori replies, I'm still waiting, working on arrangements and sorting things out the best I can. I'll let you know when I know. And then they reply, why aren't you telling me what happened? I've asked numerous times, just tell me. No reply to that either. And on Sunday, they send more question marks with no reply again. And then on Monday, July 15th at 1153 a.m., they send, okay, Lori, it's been three days. You let us know our father passed away over a text message. Three days and we haven't heard from anyone. The only information we have is that one text from you saying he passed away. You disappeared after that. What happened? When did it happen? How did it happen? Where is he now? Are there any funeral plans? And can blank and I, it was redacted, be a part of it? We talked to him all the time and now he's gone. He was our dad and we loved him very much. We deserve answers. Also, why have you been the only one to contact us? We haven't heard from Colby or Tylee. I know they are affected too. I called Colby recently too, but he didn't answer. Is JJ safe and what does he know? I need to be kept in the loop about all this. This isn't a nonchalant topic. You can't just throw a text and be done with it. Lori replies, these are your dad's wishes. He and I discussed this a lot over the years we have been together. My plan is to have him cremated as he wished and then take all five of you kids to Hawaii to spread his ashes. He did not want a funeral. He wants a celebration of his life. I've been overwhelmed, but I am trying to go or I am trying to start these arrangements today. JJ is doing good, but he does not know his daddy is gone. It's so tough because he doesn't really understand. He says daddy is in California working. I know how much he loves you boys and always has. I have a lot of things to do with the business and contacting people, and it's still all so difficult. Today, I'm trying to put up a memorial page on the funeral home website. I'll send the link to you when I have it. I love you, and so does your dad. Tuesday, July 16th at 4.16 p.m., the boys reply to this. I appreciate this information, but I will ask these questions again because I still haven't been given an answer. What happened? When did it happen? How did it happen? Where is he now? Is there a funeral? When is it? Who have you told about his death? Give me all the information you have. Please, my brother and I deserve to know. No response. And now it is Saturday, July 20th at 5.21 p.m. The boys say again, well, if you won't answer those questions, can we please have his watches and other stuff he always talked about and had around? Then Lori responds. She said, of course, send me the address you want me to send the stuff to. Kay, who is Charles's sister, is supposed to clean out the Houston house. I told her to let you and blank, I'm assuming that's his brother, have whatever you want first, and then she could have or give away the rest. I know he wanted you to have all of that. 
And that's the end of the text messages from what I had available to me. So Lori isn't even dodging questions at this point. She's just literally ignoring them. Um, I'm sure that the boys were also attempting to call her and call around to any other resources that they might have had at their disposal at that time, but they just weren't really getting any information. That's really clear. I think if they had been that they would know and Lori clearly knows what happened and how Charles died. And because law enforcement was actually buying Alex's self-defense explanation, the cops weren't contacting family members like they might if they were investigating a homicide. And I think that's a big reason why Lori wasn't telling Charles' sons the whole story is because she did not want them reaching out to law enforcement before they closed this case and saying, hey, this is not normal. This does not sound right. I, I don't like any of this. I want you to look into this further. She didn't want them stepping on any toes and maybe getting her into some trouble and possibly swaying law enforcement into doing a homicide investigation. And um, for the time being, it really works. So now with Charles Vallow dead, the only person left standing in Lori and Chad's way is Tammy Daybell. And next week, that is what we'll be diving into. I'll be covering not only Tammy's death, but several other deaths that occur within a matter of months on this absolute roller coaster of a case. I hope that this episode gave you guys a good foundation for understanding this case a little better, understanding the background a little bit more. There are so many players here, so many timelines, and we're getting new information almost every single day. So bear with me if you guys have any questions about this case or other cases, ideas for cases you want me to cover, please reach out on social media. Um, we're on Instagram and Facebook at True Crime Cases Pod and on Twitter at TC Cases Pod. As always, all of my sources for this episode are in the show notes. If you're looking for a super in-depth breakdown of every aspect of this case, I really can't recommend Nora Jasmine's YouTube channel enough. I'm going to post a link of it down below, but she has a playlist just for this case with over 40 videos and counting. She updates it regularly. She is beyond incredible. I highly suggest you guys go check out her YouTube channel. She does incredible work. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening and tuning in. I will be back next Friday for part two of this crazy case. And I hope you all have a great weekend.